the 19th century British Baptist pastor named F.B. Meyer once said, the great tragedy in the church is not unanswered prayer, but rather unoffered prayer. Today we come to the eighth and final sermon in our series entitled, I Pray. And I must confess to you this morning that one of the primary reasons I pray is because I am convinced that God listens to the prayers of his children. I think that prayer changes people and problems. I'm convinced that one of the greatest weapons in the church's arsenal is prayer. And I want to submit to you this morning that prayer is the catalyst for deliverance. The truth of that statement is found in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 19. It's that passage I invite you to turn and to give your attention. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. Acts chapter 12, I'll begin at verse 1, I'll read through verse 19. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side, woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison. He had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards, came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance. A servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. And after Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards in order that they be executed. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated.
Luke begins our passage with these words. It was about this time when King Herod arrested some belonging to the church intending to persecute them. Now Herod is a common name for kings in the New Testament. This particular King Herod is also known as Agrippa. He is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great lived and ruled during the days leading up to the birth of Jesus. And then Herod Antipas was the ruler for a better part of three decades during the life and ministry, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of our Lord. But now this is Herod Agrippa. He's the one calling the shots. I think that all the Herods were paranoid schizophrenics. I think all of them were a little loony. After all, it is Herod the Great who has one of his sons executed because he fears that that son is trying to usurp his power and authority. The son that he had murdered was the father of King Agrippa. So when the mother of Agrippa saw that her daddy-in-law was a whack job, she told her son to go, sent him to Rome, and there he lived in exile. He lived there where he was safe and secure. That's where he was educated. That's where he was raised. He became friends with some in the Roman government. He also became friends of some prominent Jews in the nation of Israel. Around 41 AD, King Agrippa is installed as the king. He's the one who is leading the show. Because of his friendship with the nation of Israel, he intended to persecute the church. I think he had a wonderful strategy. He wanted to knock out the inner circle of the leaders, Peter, James, and John. He starts, according to Dr. Luke, with James. He arrested James. He had him put to death by the sword. Now, this James is James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. Peter, James, and John form the inner circle, those closest to Christ. The death of James marks the first disciple that's murdered in the book of Acts. He is the second martyr with Stephen being the first martyr. His story is told for us in Acts chapter 7. Now that James is off the scene, Herod sets his sights on Peter, has him arrested. I think that if Herod was able to do what he wanted to do with Peter, which was to murder him as well, he then would have turned his sights on John. And I think he would have systematically gone through all the disciples. He arrested the apostle named Peter. He threw him in jail. Luke says this was during the time of Passover. Peter is there in jail. And Herod assigns 16 soldiers to watch one prisoner. Four squads, four soldiers each. They watched him around the clock. They went in three-hour shifts. And every three hours, they would rotate the sentries. They would rotate their assignments. And two of the guards were chained to the two hands of Peter the other two were stationed right outside the jail cell door. The reason Herod did this was to keep his soldiers alert and awake and to keep Peter from escaping and also to knock down any prospect of him being rescued by the church. Peter is in dire straits. He is in jail. He's watched constantly by four soldiers, 16 in all. They're watching him around the clock. And Peter is in prison. The church swings into action. 
Now you might expect for the church to begin a strategy plan of how they're going to bust Peter out of jail, but they don't do that. You may expect them to grab all their swords and clubs and, and charge the prison, but they don't do that either. You would expect for the church to rise up, and certainly the church does rise up, and the way the church rises up is by kneeling on their knees. The way the church has always been able to rise up is by first kneeling down. That's how it's always been. That's how it's still today. Our greatest weapon in the arsenal of the church is prayer. Prayer is the catalyst for all deliverance, and the church begins in prayer. In fact, It is Dr. Luke who tells us that they are praying earnestly for him. That word earnestly, it means fervently. It means intently. Literally, it means stretching out. So you get the portrait that the church gathers in prayer and they're praying uh, on behalf of Peter. They're waging war on his behalf. And literally, they are stretching out holy hands unto God. They are lying down, stretched out, faces to the floor. These portraits reveal the the passion with which they pray. The church is earnestly praying for Peter. Now why? I think the answer is twofold. I think the reason they're praying is because the church believes that when God's people pray, things happen. Have you realized that? I mean, when God's people pray, things happen. Hannah prayed. And God gave her a son. Hezekiah prayed and God gave him 15 more years of life. Jonah prayed and God got him out of the smelly belly of the fish. David prayed and he got forgiveness from his sin. Elijah prayed and the weather forecast changed. Daniel prayed and the mouths of the lions were shut. Jesus prayed and his best friend Lazarus came hopping out of the grave. Paul and Silas prayed and there was a jailhouse rock. The jailer prayed and he was saved from his sins. Not just him, but his entire household. When God's people pray, things happen. And this morning, the church understands this. As they pray for Peter, they are praying because they know that it makes a difference. Somehow, some way, they're convinced that God listens to the prayers of his people. And when God's people pray, things happen. But there's a second reason. I think the reason the church prays is not only because they realize that things happen when God's people pray. But secondly, they know that Peter's in dire straits. Without a mighty movement of God, there's no hope for Peter. Peter is between a rock and a hard place. He is in prison. He's being watched constantly around the clock. Four soldiers every three hours, 16 soldiers in all. He is constantly being watched. There is no way he can bust out. No way he can break out. No way they can come and rescue him. There is no way humanly that he's going to get out of this predicament. He is in dire straits. So the church says our only option and our best option is just to pray for him. So they pray earnestly for Peter. You know some people in dire straits, don't you? You know some people that are bound up, incarcerated, may not be physical prison, but maybe it's an emotional prison. Maybe it's mental. Maybe it's spiritual. They are bound. They're incarcerated. They're in dire straits. And apart from a mighty miracle of God, something tragic is going to happen. 
You know that teenage girl. She's not just dabbling in drugs. She's addicted to them. And if something doesn't change, and I mean quickly, then you are fearful that you're going to attend her funeral. Church today, we need to get down on our knees and pray for her. You know, that man who is caught in that seductive web of pornography. His usage is not getting less frequent, but it's more frequent. He is looking at images on his phone and in front of his computer. And now he's beginning to think to himself, I can't just watch. Now I've got to form some ideas to act out what I'm watching. Oh, my friends, you know of that man. And this morning, we just need to wage war on his behalf. We need to kneel down in prayer and say, and say, God, we cannot afford to lose one more man in the seductive web of pornography. We know some people in dire straits, don't we? We know the husband and wife, their marriage is hanging on by a thread, if that much. Their marriage is on the rocks. Everything inside that home is full of frustration and bitterness and unforgiveness. It's the he said, she said, what he did, what she did. Church, we just need to kneel down on their behalf. We need to wage war for them. We need to bow down, rise up by kneeling down because we know there are some people, there are some marriages, there are some families that are in dire straits. Oh, we know that soccer mom, that soccer mom who's a single mom. And she is wound tight and stressed out. She's keeping two to three jobs just to make ends meet. She's chasing after the American dream for her and also for her children. But that American dream is about to eat her lunch. She's overwhelmed with fatigue and stress. This morning, church, we need to kneel down on her behalf and pray for her. Oh, we know that middle-aged woman And she is incarcerated by guilt. Guilt is a terrible slave master. Because of things she did in her past, because of things that had happened to her, because of decisions that she had made, she knows that God can forgive her, but she's not real sure if she can forgive herself. I mean, some of the things she's done, some of the places she's been, some of the experiences she's had, it would make your hair curl. And so she says to herself, I can't tell anybody. I've got to keep it bound up. And I know that God can forgive me, but I'm not real sure if I can forgive myself. And this woman comes in And she slams and plasters a smile on her face. And when you ask her, how's it going? She'll say, oh, fine, I'm doing well. But inside, she is dying. She is gripped by guilt. She is uh, overwhelmed by guilt. And this morning, we just need to kneel on her behalf and pray for her because the church is never stronger. The church never rises up more than when the church kneels down in prayer. The church prays because they understand that things happen when God's people pray. But they also know they've got to pray for Peter because he's in dire straits. And so they pray earnestly for him. This is Passover week. This is the time when God's people always got together to remember how God had faithfully delivered their forefathers from Egyptian captivity. And now we have Peter who's incarcerated. It's also during Passover week when Jesus had been executed and raised from the dead. 
The greatest singular act of deliverance is Calvary. When Jesus died in our place, when he took our punishment upon himself, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our addictions, all of our failures, all of our sin was nailed to the tree and we bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh our soul. And on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. That act of Calvary is the single greatest act of deliverance that's ever taken place. The church is gathering during that week of Passover. They remember the story of how God had faithfully delivered their forefathers. They remember how Jesus had died to set them free from the shackles of their sin and how the tomb is empty. And now here we are at another Passover week and there's the apostle Peter and he is in jail. Herod knew that he couldn't do anything during Passover. So he decides that Right after Passover is over, he will call Peter out for a trial. Everybody understands this is a mock trial. This is a setup. There's no way that Peter's going to get a fair shake on this thing. There's no way that he's going to get a fair trial. And so everybody realizes that what Herod is doing is he's setting Peter up for the same demise as James. James was put to death by the sword. Peter inevitably is going to be put to death by the sword. It's the night before the trial. Scripture says that Peter is asleep. You and I will be wide awake. Right before you stand before the judge, right before you have this mock trial, right before you're in between a rock and a hard place, we would be wide awake. Oh, not Peter. He's not paranoid, he's peaceful. He's not scared, he's secure. He's not worried, he's catching some winks. He is asleep. And while he's asleep, presumably all the other soldiers are also sleeping, an angel of God comes and pokes Peter. Peter, wake up. Quick, get up. And Peter stood up. And when Peter stood up, the shackles on his wrist fell off. Don't miss this. Obedience precedes liberation. Let me say it another way. If you want to be set free, just obey God. Obedience precedes liberation. You want to be set free from your past? Obey the word of God. You want to be set free from the shackles of your soul? Obey the word of God. You want to be set free from your past experiences? Obey the word of God. You want to be set free from the fear that binds you? Obey the word of God. You want to be set free? Simply obey. The word of God comes to the angel of God, given to the man of God. Peter, quickly, get up. Peter stands up and the chains fall off. There is obedience that precedes liberation. You want to be set free from whatever shackles you. You want to be set free from whatever binds you. You want to be set free from whatever is in your life that you can't shake. Obey God and his word. And I promise you that in that obedience, you will find great liberation. Peter stands up. His chains fall off. The chains fall to the ground. And I don't know if they make a sound, but if they do make a sound, it's not enough sound to wake those soldiers. 
Peter and the angel, they walk past those two soldiers. They walk past the second set of guards. They get to the edge of the prison, the iron gate that's there leading to the city. And that iron gate opens and they don't have to do a thing. They walk a whole length of a street. And then finally the angel leaves. And Peter realizes this is not a vision. This is not a dream. This is reality. God has come to set me free. And when he finally realizes that he's there in the middle of the night, he's in the middle of the street, he's set free, he goes to the house of Mary. This is Mary, who's the mother of John Mark. The church was gathering in her home for prayer. Apparently, they had been there for many hours. They were praying specifically for Peter and for his deliverance. I don't know exactly what they prayed. The scripture doesn't tell us, doesn't privilege us with the words that they spoke. Maybe they're praying for a mighty deliverance. Maybe they're praying for a lenient judge. Maybe they're praying, God, just help me not to be in the same predicament as Peter. I don't know exactly what they're praying for. I just know they spend hours praying. They're in the home of Mary, who's the mother of John Mark. And Peter goes to the house and he knocks on the door. And a servant girl named Rhoda comes to answer the door. Rhoda, it's me, Peter. Can you please open the door? Who did you say you are? Who are you? Honey, darling, it's Peter. I can't speak real loud, but listen, I just got out of jail in a very miraculous way. I need you to open the door. Let me come into the faith family, all right? Just open the door. Who is this? Honey, it's Peter. Open the door. Ah, it's Peter. It really is you. And she turns around and runs back to the open large room where everybody's gathered. She leaves Peter outside the locked door. She says, hey, everybody, Peter's at the door. Peter's at the door. Hey, hey, the apostle Peter, he's right out there. And the people of the church said, now Rhoda. (laughs) Now we are having a dignified prayer meeting right here in this open large room and you have interrupted our prayer time, Rhoda. Now we're praying for Peter's deliverance and you've just bothered us. Go back and do what you're supposed to be doing. You don't understand. Peter is at the door. Woman, you are out of your mind. Listen, there's no way that's Peter. We are praying for his deliverance and you mean to tell us that he's actually at the, yes, I'm telling you, it's Peter at the door. And they say, woman, that must be his angel. That can't be him. See, there was a belief in the first century that when a person died and went to heaven, that God could send that person's angel back to loved ones just to communicate to those loved ones that the person had passed Yet the person was in safe uh, surroundings in the arms of God. Now keep in mind, that is nowhere taught in the Bible, but it was still believed in the first century. Because you and I both know people who are religious, but not biblical, right? So they were saying, listen, it is easier for us to believe in the fairy tale that Peter has died. He's gone to heaven and God has sent his angel back to earth. To tell you, sweet Rhoda, to come in here and interrupt us of our prayer meeting that Peter is doing okay, that he passed, and he's in the safe surroundings of the arms of God. They would rather believe that versus that God actually answered their prayers. Church, 
Why is it that we are amazed when God moves? Why is it that we are astonished when God actually answers our prayers? Why is it that we are shocked when God actually gives us what we've asked for? They asked for the deliverance of Peter. And when God delivered Peter to them, they said, it can't be Peter. It's got to be his angel. We would rather believe a religious fairy tale than the facts of God that God could actually do what we're asking him to do. Because don't we pray to the same God who made the heavens and the earth by merely speaking them into existence? We pray to the same God that protected Noah and his family from the worldwide flood, right? We pray to the same God who rescued Joseph from the pit and placed him in the palace, right? Y'all can answer. We pray to the same God who not only, who liberated the children of Israel from their Egyptian captivity, right? We serve and pray to the same God that shut up the mouths of the lions in Daniel's den, right? We pray to the same God that danced in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? We pray to the same God that showed up on Mount Carmel and declared once and for all by sending fire from heaven that he, not Baal, is the real God of the universe, right? We pray to the same God that raised up an army out of a valley of dry bones, right? We serve and pray to the same God that stepped out of heaven, stepped into earth some 2,000 years ago, was born in a Bethlehem barn, and proclaimed the announcement to some roughneck shepherds in the field, right? We serve the same God and pray to the same God that fed 5,000 men, not counting women and children, with five loaves of bread and two fish, right? We pray to the same God that raised Lazarus from the dead, right? We pray to the same God that uh, was nailed to the cross for your sins and mine, placed into a borrowed tomb, a stone was rolled in front of it, and on the third day, he boldly walked out of the tomb because death could not hold the author of life, right? We pray to the same God who's ascended to the heavens and promises one day to mount the white horse, peel back the clouds, come over the eastern sky, and there establish his kingdom on earth, right? We pray to the God who cannot be stopped, right? So why does it surprise us when God moves? Why does it surprise us when God actually does what we ask him to do? Why does it surprise us and shock us when God answers our prayers? I want you to know that we pray to the God who is able. He is able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask, think, or imagine. We pray to the God who can melt a heart of stone. We pray to a God who can make a way when there is no way. We pray to a God that can put a marriage back together. We pray to a God who can find and retrieve the prodigal. We pray to the same God and we pray to a God who is able to do more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. This is the God to whom we pray. Peter's still knocking. Finally, dear sweet sister Rhoda convinces them it really is Peter. I think she's the one that probably goes back, opens the door, lets him in and says, see, I told you so. Luke says they were astonished. The word means shocked, surprised, amazed. They were astonished. They got loud. 
And Peter motions for them to be quiet. He uses hand gestures to tell them to be quiet. He begins to describe how he was miraculously delivered from the jail. He said, um, when did you start praying for me? Oh, about such and such a time. And what were you asking for? Oh, we were asking for this and that. Well, you know what? That's the same time that God delivered me. And that's exactly what God did to me because prayer is the catalyst of deliverance. And one of the greatest weapons in the church's arsenal is prayer. Peter leaves the faith family. He goes to another place. The next morning, there is no small commotion. You bet your bottom dollar there's no small commotion. Those soldiers, they wake up and they think to themselves, wait a minute, we're missing somebody here. The other squad of guards, they come and they say, where's the prisoner? They make a thorough search for Peter. They cannot find him. Herod Agrippa cross-examines the soldiers. He's not satisfied. When he realizes that Peter cannot be found, somebody is going to pay. Those soldiers were executed. Luke doesn't tell us specifically, but I'm assuming all 16 were executed. They died in place of Peter. Peter uh, told the church, tell James all about this and tell the brothers. Now, you may sit there and you think to yourself, but wait a minute, I thought James just died. I thought he was executed at the edge of the sword. What's a different James? That's James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, the beloved disciple. But this James, at the end of the story, is James, the brother of our Lord. He's the one who is the prominent leader in the Jerusalem church. And Peter says, you tell James and all the others what's taken place because this gospel, which Christ has called us to, goes forth unhindered. The very next story, Luke tells us about the death of Herod Agrippa. I wonder why he does that. Why does he put those stories side by side? I think he does it to to show us that Agrippa was trying to stop the gospel, but Jesus has given an unstoppable gospel. That Herod was trying to stifle the church, but Jesus came to mobilize the church. It was William Willimon who said that the gospel goes forth unhindered, even though the bearers of the gospel may not. The gospel goes forth unhindered, but all the bearers of the gospel may not. James, put to death by the sword. Peter, allowed to live. That's that's a hard thing to describe. It's a hard thing to tell somebody or tell a group of, tell a family, tell individuals. Why is it that James died and Peter didn't? I don't know. Was it that Peter had more faith than James? No. Was it the church prayed more for Peter than James? No. Well, why is it that James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, why did he die and why did Peter, why was he allowed to go forth? And I I like William Willimon's answer. The gospel goes forth unhindered, even though all the bearers of the gospel may not. But you realize that if you are a bearer of the gospel, when that time comes for the Lord Jesus to receive you unto himself, your reward is far greater than anything you've risked for the kingdom. 
the Apostle Peter, the church. The way they rise up was by kneeling down. F.B. Meyer's exactly right. The greatest tragedy in the church is not unanswered prayer. But the greatest tragedy in the church is unoffered prayer. I mean, Peter could have been delivered with or without the prayers of the church. But I just think, I think that when God's people pray, things happen. I think that, that we pray for people that are in dire straits and somehow, some way, those prayers, they change people and they change problems. The reason I pray is because I'm convinced that God listens to the prayers of his people. I can't tell God what to do. You can't tell God what to do. But somehow he longs to hear the prayers of his children. And when we pray, God acts. He moves heaven and earth to do everything within his permissive will. Because God listens to the prayers of his children. So what do we do when we come to the end of an eight-part sermon series on prayer? I think the greatest thing we can do is pray. I think that the greatest thing you and I can do at the end of this sermon series is simply to bow before the Lord and pray, realizing that we pray to the unstoppable God who's given the unstoppable gospel to his unstoppable church. We pray to a God that cannot be hindered. We pray to a God that cannot be thwarted. We pray to a God that cannot be stopped. So I can't think of anything greater than for us just to stop and pray. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Then you, my friend, just simply pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because prayer is the catalyst for your deliverance. Maybe you are a believer And this morning, I just want to invite you to come and pray. Maybe there's somebody in your life that's incarcerated physically or emotionally or spiritually or mentally. Maybe you just want to pray for your son or your daughter. Maybe you want to pray for your spouse. Maybe you want to pray for your uncle, your aunt, your cousin, your family member. Maybe you just want to pray for somebody that's in your close circle of influence that you know that's in dire straits, that if something doesn't change, if God doesn't deliver them, then something tragic is going to happen. Maybe you just want to pray for the person on your right, the person on your left. The person that's right in front of you, the person that's right behind you. This morning, church, as we come to the end of this eight-part sermon series on prayer, I just want to implore you to pray. Let us go before God who is unhindered. Let us go before God who is unstoppable. Let us go before God who is our loving God and Father. Let us go before him and simply pray. The greatest tragedy in the church is not unanswered prayer. The greatest tragedy is unoffered prayer. So this morning, let's offer our prayers up to the God who can do the impossible. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And we give you this invitation. And Lord Jesus, we pray that chains will fall. The people that are shackled will be set free. Oh, Father, we pray for a mighty movement of your spirit in this place. 
We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.